read when this podcast comes out, it's going to be after Labor Day, which I guess means that summer is officially over. That means uh, I can't record wearing my seersucker suit any longer. <laughs> yes, you have to remove your white slacks. My, my white uh, bucks, you know, like dirty bucks. And then you've got white bucks that, you know, really only wear them at Easter. I guess I have to get prepared. I have to bring out my parka for the winter podcast recording sessions. Yeah, I'm going to be in flip-flops for a while longer because it is flipping hot down here still. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, healthcare systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have fun along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Reed Smith and Chris Boyer. And welcome to episode 83. I am one of your co-hosts, Reed Smith, joined as always by Chris Boyer. Hello, Reed. We're only 17 episodes away from episode 100. I know. That seems a ways off. And, and I guess it technically is if you think 17 weeks away. I mean, that's that's a pretty mm-hmm. good pretty good chunk of time, but it seems to go by pretty fast. But that'll be, we'll be dead in the middle, middle of winter, I guess, when that happens. Yeah, or... You know, it'll still be like 85 here, probably. But <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> I, make the, I make the heat jokes, but man, it's just, it's getting just miserable. I'm ready for it to, to cool off. But in any case, well, here we are, another episode. Appreciate the support. Uh, as many have probably seen, uh, we pushed out a listener survey this week for uh, all the Touchpoint Media shows. And so, we would certainly appreciate you navigating to our website, touchpoint.health. If you look down at the bottom of any of our pages of our website, you will see a banner for the listener survey. We would certainly appreciate uh, you taking that. It literally, I think last time, the survey tool we use actually measures how long it takes. And I think it's mm-hmm. around two and a half minutes. Oh. Yeah, it's a handful of questions. And, and really, we just, you know, the, the goal is whether it's our show or any of the other shows that people listen to, we would like to know about the users uh, as far as how they like to listen, when they like to listen to the show. And so we can better craft the shows, but obviously the episodes within the shows to better fit uh, how people would like to consume this content. And even as we look to create future content, uh, there's a place for you to provide some feedback and things like that. It's just a series of questions, and we're going to take you know the, the answers to your questions to heart here because our show is about you guys. I mean, we couldn't have made it to episode 83 without everybody listening in, and we really appreciate them. You know what else we couldn't have made it to episode 83 without, Reed? I'm going to guess sponsors. Good guess. <laughs> and one of those sponsors is our friends at Loyal. You know, Reed, today, healthcare consumers want to know what other patients have to say. And they definitely pay attention to the number of stars behind a physician's name and what people are saying about those doctors. For healthcare systems embracing physician reviews and star ratings, uh, it's a win-win if you do it the right way. And using an AI-driven platform, Loyal provides health systems the tools they need to amplify that patient feedback and really guide patients through their digital journey. With its multidiscipline team of engineers, marketers, and data scientists, Loyal partners with the nation's leading healthcare systems to promote patient feedback online. So here's what you need to do if you're listening in. Pause the podcast and just jump on over to 
loyalhealth.com to learn a little bit more about them. It's a really cool platform and you can schedule a demo there. And, and when you do, be sure to tell them that Touchpoint Media sent you. But let's jump in. We're going to talk a little bit today about community management, online community management, community managers. Uh, later, we'll actually hear from one of our oldest friends in the space, Dan Hinman. Uh, many probably know Dan, especially if you're involved or a member of the Mayo Clinic's social media mm-hmm. network, you'll know that name. But anyway, he's going to mm-hmm. actually dive in and talk more specifically about a certain type of community on a certain type of platform. But we wanted to talk a little in a little broader sense, right, about what community management actually is. And I think that definition, as we typically do on these podcasts, we start with maybe redefining what that definition of community management is. And Reed, I understand that you found a really great definition of of community management. That's right. And now remember, we said community management, not necessarily online community management. So when you look at the definition, it's actually pretty interesting. When you look at Wikipedia, it actually says community management is the management of a common resource or issue by community through the uh, collective action of volunteers and stakeholders, so that, that makes sense, right? I mean, you know, it's a collective action, typically by volunteers. And uh, the resource managed can either be material or uh, informational. So examples include, and this is what it says, management of common grazing and water rights, fisheries, and open source software. So <laughs> I look at the jump there from fisheries to open source software. Uh, anyway, I just thought that was great. Uh, maybe we need to create an open source software about fisheries and water rights management. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I think the point there is in that, in that very first sentence, you know, whether, um, you know, we're talking about online communities or not, the idea is, is that there is a common resource or issue. So there's a commonality for the community that is collectively uh, acted upon and managed, if you will. Absolutely. Now, there's another line in the definition, read that I want to kind of stress, although it, it does quantify, it says in the case of physical resources, but I would also say that this is probably applicable to online uh, communities as well. So in the case of uh, physical resources, community management strategies are frequently employed to avoid the tragedy of the commons and encourage sustainability. The tragedy. Oh, great. The tragedy great. of the commons. That's right. That's right. That's um, awesome. So that's that's community management as a as a whole or industry or segment, if you will. Now, a big piece of that, and a lot of what we'll be talking about today, of course, is the actual community manager. And, and you know, we've done some surveys. We've been, you know, you and I have both been around, you know, quite a few hospitals through the years, and uh, there are people that do what would be considered community management, I guess. Uh, I don't know that anybody's full-time job necessarily is that, but there is this idea of a community manager. It's certainly a responsibility, right? Of a, like a, a person that does social media, that's part of their job responsibilities to do community management, right? Right. Back to Wikipedia we go. An online community manager, according to Wikipedia, builds, grows, and manages online communities, performing community management often around a brand or a cause. I mean, I, you know, I can get behind that. I mean, that, that sounds logical. Yeah. I think the other thing, it's it was saying that one of the f- earliest online community managers, I guess, was uh, mm-hmm. way back in the mid-1990s with 
massive multiplayer online role-playing games. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that crazy? When I was playing MMORPGs, those people, I never thought of them as community managers. They seemed to be more like, you know, they, they were just making sure that the people weren't spamming and weren't cursing. And, you know, I guess in a way they're managing the community, but they weren't as friendly as we think of community managers nowadays. The term, as it says, the history of it, I guess, uh, the online community manager, um, you know, we didn't call it that necessarily at the time, whether you're talking about the role-playing games uh, or even, um, you know, as we begin to see some of these uh, offerings and, and, and functions online, like, you know, bulletin boards and forums and things like that, right? That came also in the 90s with kind of some of that mainstream growth as the, as the internet really started with the AOLs and the prodigy and, you know, some of that kind of stuff that included a lot of those, you know, discussion forums and boards and things like that. Now it's, it's, it's evolved into things much more than that into basically Facebook and and some others, but you still kind of got the remnants of that when you look at like Reddit boards and things like that. I mean, I understand kind of where it came from, but uh, maybe you found a great article, Reed, that I thought would be cool to walk through, which is the history of online community management or moderation. It starts back at what we, what we would kind of consider, you know, the beginning of, of the forums and, and moderation and things like that all around, you know, 2005 uh, or so, right? And this is where people were asking and receiving uh, information. So ask questions, get answers, you know, kind of a thing. So they, they were topic-based communities. Yeah, I was around on the internet way back then. And, you know, I was I was talking to people all around the world because we liked a particular band. And I would ask questions like, where can we find special recordings of this band, that sort of thing. And it was really very much transactional in that regard. And then something happened, though, in 2008. Yeah, Mark Zuckerberg happened. <laughs> yeah. And that sort of shifted the, the the scope of how a community was actually perceived online because that really brought that social aspect of it. And so right, it was more about making friends and being able to, you know, to develop like a, a, a place where people want to be and, and, and bring your personality into that community. Yeah, because even though even though Facebook existed, there weren't brand pages, for example, I would assume no groups. I don't remember offhand, but I don't. I don't think groups existed then either, did they? It was just basically friending personal profiles. Yeah, and I, way back then, I mean, I was working with a hospital. I think they even created a Facebook profile for their hospital. Right. I always thought that was a little bit strange, you know, because that, that wasn't the right fit, and that's because it was before they had this kind of group mentality. This was just about friends connecting with other friends. And then, good grief, 2009 rolled around and we got into this idea of brand influencers. Everybody knows those folks. And if you came to South by Southwest around that time, they were the internet celebrities, right? You had the guy Kawasaki's, you had Robert Scoble, Tony Shea from Zappos, you know, folks like that, right? I mean, it was the guys that founded Twitter. Anyway, you had these brand influencers that were out there. And they really started to amass an audience that were kind of loyal to them as a brand and wanting to learn more about them. I mean, I even friended some of those people way back when. You know, I still am surprised that I'm like friends with some of these people on Facebook and other platforms. But, you know, way back then, it was like, that's the way we were doing it. We're just coalescing around them. And that's about the time they started to introduce limits to the amount of friends you could have. 
And then flash forward a couple of years, well, one more year. In 2010, we started to talk about where Facebook converted these fan pages to brand pages. This is like the first advent of like groups and even business representations. So this is really where community management roles started to change a lot, right? Yeah, because it was there was a brand page. Somebody had to monitor that, you know, or if somebody asked a question, somebody had to post things on that page, you know, et cetera. And then, oh, good grief, 2011 rolls around, and this is, as they like to say in this article, the year of the social media expert. Oh, boy. Uh, which hits a little close to home, maybe at times. But mm-hmm. um, you know, this was when we had the old spice smell like a man. You know, Social media was, I guess, becoming a bigger player in the field of, of marketing. We started seeing that kind of like, oh, wait a minute, we can... We can like market two people here. And so you get all of these experts. And I prefer the term guru. Come on, Reed. Let's be honest here. Ninja. And then the social media platforms evolved more. And we started to get better insights into sort of the results of what you're doing. And this is 2012. I remember this really well because that's about the time I started breaking out my ukulele and singing oh about yep. the ROI of yep. social media. Because that's when we started to get measurement. I mean, this is when like... Okay, well, that was all cute, but like this apparently is now costing us money. <laughs> How's that work? You know, <laughs> what's the return on investment for your social media efforts and how do you measure it? And then that evolved even further. Then we got into, well, maybe we should start doing something called brand journalism. Mm. That's that newsroom style community management, yep. you know, where they started to put stuff out there and they started to newsjack. And if you recall, remember that was when the Super Bowl in 2013, when the Super Bowl went dark? Yep. And Oreo put out that ad? Yep. Yeah, still dunk in the dark. Mm-hmm. And that's really like, you know, that's like newsjacking at its finest. I'm sorry, it's not newsjacking. That is real-time marketing. That's what that is. There was this whole new plan at that point of like, everybody's got to do that now. So now we're always on and we got to have everybody watching everything. And, you know, we need to we need to tweet stuff out with hashtags that are relevant to what just happened in the news. That's right. Be real time. I wish I'd say that was kind of the extent of where we're at, but it's continued to grow. We've gone now past social media starts to become all things for all people and brands started to just really jump in in a big way. And so you had to do all these different things. And that's what they, they call it, the expert generalist, mm-hmm. where they could do a variety of different things and be able to monitor a variety of different needs of the community. And it just became really just like this chaotic mess for a while. Yes. And I think that I'm an expert generalist. I'm going to start using that term. That's pretty good. I like that. So where, where have we seen it go from there? I, I think, you know, we've seen it turn back to the, the idea of authenticity and, and being online and real all the time. Service recovery uh, has become a big part of this, especially if you look at healthcare Absolutely. Uh, or really Absolutely. Any, any service industry for that matter. And so having people that you know, can do that. I think in recent years, it's, you know, it's knowing your brand as well. You know, everybody likes, you know, Wendy's is really funny on Twitter, you know, and takes jabs at folks and things like that. And so, and I also see like the advent of advertising. I mean, more and more social media is there, you know, social media platforms are going towards how do you integrate paid strategies with your organic strategies? And how do you do it in a way that doesn't disrupt your own community? Fewer and fewer of your followers are going to actually see your content organically, because the social platforms are trying to get you to advertise more. 
Another thing we've talked about this before, Reed, right? The micro influencers reaching out to other influencers and really starting to get them to become brand loyalists for you and sort of leveraging your brand through their other channels, through their audiences. I mean, social media and community management, it's just become really an an interesting thing. And I, and I anticipate that I'll probably grow in many different ways too as we move forward. But I think what holds true is when we look at it today, there still is a certain core set of online communities that are out there. And there's certain characteristics of a good community manager that we, that, you know, are still hold true today. Right. Right. Like not an intern, but anyway, we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a minute. (laughs) Anyway, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. I'm jumping ahead. Let's talk about the types of online communities. And this is in reference to, uh, again, uh, an article we'll, we'll link to in the, in the show notes. Uh, on uh, visioncritical.com and uh, it's called it's uh, well it's, a, it's an article that, that's under research I guess on their site but anyway it's called uh, Beyond Facebook Four Types of Online Communities and Best Practices on How to Use Them and so I thought this was a really nice you know it's not a super recent article but I you know I think from you know categorically speaking this really hasn't changed much uh, at least not in my eyes, uh, with the way that they have this article structured. The first one is something called social communities, and they refer to it, they're defined as like public social networks like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where these social communities nowadays are, are used for a variety of different things, marketing purposes, broadcasting information, building brand awareness, and trying to reach you know those social audiences to just really expand the reach of your messaging. You know, we'll hear from Dan here in a little bit because we're specifically going to talk about Facebook groups uh, around patient support. But social communities, I think, are probably the most common. That's probably what we think of when we think about community management. Another one is uh, support, support communities. And so this is a place that enables members to offer you know, tips, tricks, you know, support to other customers, uh, helping companies in the end, I guess, reduce support cost. So compared to social communities, that, that was what they're calling it. You know, this category provides more of a structured way of gathering uh, innovative ideas because communities allow brands to track product service related conversations and, and things like that. And so giving a way for your you know, consumers to interact with each other in a way that you can ultimately then glean something from. Uh, and in turn, they, they help and support each other. Refer back to uh, a number of episodes ago where we did an episode on online patient communities. And we went into that a little bit in more depth because the equivalent in healthcare are these online patient communities. Okay, so the third is advocate communities, where it allows brands to mobilize the most passionate, loyal customers and really give them the tools they need and even rewarding them, these these advocate members, these loyal members for writing testimonial posts, for doing a lot of different things to kind of amplify the brand. So think about those when you're, you think about like sponsored bloggers for right. you, advocacy marketing, mm-hmm. micro influencers, all of that stuff. That's really what that, that those advocate communities are about. Yeah. And sometimes people may think of this as more of a platform. Right. So you have things like Voice Storm and Social Chorus and uh, Bizarre Voice and some of those historically that people have used uh, in this way. And then finally, uh, insight communities. Uh, so these are made up of you know, a select group of customers who maintain you know, more of a long term relationship with a brand. If I think about these, 
it's almost like an on, well, it's not almost like it is an ongoing focus group. This can be deployed in various ways, can look different, you know, depending on what it is that you're doing and, and where you are and how sophisticated you want to be with it. It really is. And, you know, I see that starting to be used, uh, particularly around um, research when uh, health systems are engaging in like research groups and even some of the rules around how to try to utilize social media in conjunction with a research trial or a clinical trial that you're doing are changing are changing to support sort of this social community. So that's kind of cool. Hey, we want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors and that's our good friends at Binary Fountain. You know, as a healthcare marketer, it's probably pretty obvious these days how much time you're spending uh, on reviews, ratings relative to hospitals, physicians, all that kind of good stuff. You know, too many of those are going unanswered and they're certainly not being analyzed. This could be costing us new and current customers. It could be impacting our patient experience scores and potentially impacting our revenue. Luckily, our good friends at Binary Fountain have an online reputation management platform called Binary Health Analytics. If you'd like to learn more or even schedule a demo, visit them online at binaryfountain.com. That's binaryfountain.com. So we talk about social communities, support communities, advocate communities, and insight communities. Mm -hmm. How do you determine what's the right one for your business? And they go into this a little bit, and I think it's it's pretty, I, wanna, I don't want to say common sense, but they've got a logical approach to this. First and foremost, like anything that we do, whether it's a marketing initiative, you know, in this case, community management, whatever it may be, you know, hiring, you know, new roles for your organization, whatever, you know, what's the business goal? What's the outcome we're looking to get? That's really what they're wanting to ask here. Is this a way for us to better monitor uh, satisfaction? For example, mm-hmm. are we trying to increase brand recognition? Um, are we piloting or doing beta testing? You know, we want you know people to give us feedback on new products and ideas, that kind of thing. Are we trying to build loyalty? You know, what's the point of the community? And two, you know, you want to consider the depth of the feedback that you want from the people in your community or your customers. These online communities, you know, they allow us to engage with customers or even potential customers and get insights. But depending on the type of insight you want to gain, some of these communities are a little bit better than others. These insight communities provide really deep insight into people that are loyal with your brand. So that's that's a great fit if that's what you're trying to get. However, if you're trying to build maybe advocacy, then, you know, or allow for people to kind of amplify your voice more, then you might want to you know, go over to the advocacy communities. Whatever it is, the type of feedback that you want really can can pinpoint you to the right type of community that you want to build. It's interesting when you think about this, you know, and kind of the last, I guess, uh, piece that they mention here is ultimately choosing the right or, or complement, as they put it, complementary mix of online communities. If I think about hospitals I've been involved with and, and worked with through the years, social media is an easy one. Uh, as far as Facebook groups and things like that, as far as communities. Um, and then I've also used what is probably considered more of a, not a help desk, but like a get satisfaction, for example, Zendesk, you know, those types of things, more, more of a ticketing type system, but a way for people to engage with you. Uh, around your products and services. Through these rented platforms like Facebook and LinkedIn and things like that, many of the more where I've seen this build of online communities is either they're being built holistically or purposefully by a brand 
or by a particular interest group. It just reminds me back to the old days, Reed, when, do you remember Ning, the yeah. the social media yeah, yeah. in a box, right? Yeah. Those are, That was designed to be an online uh, community platform that you could just create over anything that you wanted to do. What we're starting to see is, is more and more specialization, though. It's not just at, try to do everything for everyone. In this particular case, like Zendesk, I've used that to, to do for a ticketing system, but that became really a customer feedback tool. What's cool, though, about this article that you found, Reed, there's a really great checklist here. I really encourage people listening in. They can jump over there and they can kind of go through and check through. I want to accomplish this. I want to accomplish this. They have things like do you want feedback with meaningful context? Do you want online engagement with known members? Mm-hmm. And you start to check down the box and it tells you which ones are the right ones for for you. You have to take all this into context of what you're trying to accomplish, your organization, budget, manpower, you know, all those types of things. I think yeah. one thing that they mentioned here at the end of this article, which I think is really important in probably holds true for a number of, uh, of things that we do, but is not putting all your eggs in, in one basket. Uh, you'll hear Dan talk about this. And I don't think it's, you know, you know, there's nothing that we haven't all thought about, which is we don't own Facebook. We don't know what Martin Zuckerberg's going to do when we wake up in the morning. We could all be gone. And one thing that's not mentioned in there, because this article is obviously not healthcare specific, but you know, one of the things that tends to work pretty well is that these online support communities mirror or complementary to uh, in-person support communities in, in a lot of cases, right? So you think about stroke, weight loss, different things like that, uh, different types of cancer, uh, diabetes, you know, et cetera. Go talk to the folks that run those. Obviously, you want them involved in these online communities as well. You know, what works well in person? What doesn't work well in person? What are some of the barriers they're having? You know, can online actually address those barriers? So maybe let's let's switch gears a little bit and move away from the actual community to the act of community management. We don't necessarily look at community management in in the correct fashion, in my opinion. We've Mm -hmm. talked about this for a long time now and on numerous episodes that as a department, we're we're an advertising department. We're not a marketing department, maybe overgeneralizing a little bit. Then how is community management any different, right? How are we not just promoting? But you aren't. I mean, the the whole purpose of community management should not be around social media marketing. That's a common mis- misconception. It's, and, and I think maybe we could, we'll rephrase this section as like almost like a tip of the hat to the Jeff Foxworthy, right? <laughs> you might not be a good community manager if, maybe we could kind of checklist and talk about how community management is a lot different. A lot of times people use social media as like, well, this is, we're doing community management when they're really, what they're doing is they're using social media as a marketing platform. Right. Or the, yeah, they just don't really understand it. Right. It's like, you know, do yeah. you guys do community management? Yes. We have a Facebook page. Hmm. It's not what I asked. No. You know, maybe let's go through a few things that may poke the bear a little bit, but yeah, here we go. Okay. I'll, I'll set it up, Reed. Okay. You might not be a community manager if you're simply just using hashtags. That's so true. <laughs> what, what if you use four or five hashtags, Reed? Oh, then you're you're really doing community management then. You know? <laughs> no, and so are we saying hashtags are bad? No, absolutely not. Um, they have their place. They have their use. I mean, I use them. Using a hashtag, especially on Twitter, does put you into a community of sorts, right? 
So you could argue that a hashtag classifies that conversation as part of a larger community, but that doesn't mean you're doing community management. It just means you walked into a room and said something. Right. I mean, it could be a tactic to try to reach more audiences to bring them to your community. But once they're at your community, there's a whole different responsibility involved. Okay. How about this? You might not be a community manager if... (laughs) You monitor only rating sites. You mean the ratings and reviews? and, And how about what if you respond to the reviews? Yeah, no, that's great. And you should do that. You de- you definitely should do that. And is that a piece of community management? Uh, yeah, yeah, it could be. Sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it, you don't just check the box on community management because, well, we have a platform that monitors our brand mentions online. Or we say, hey, thank you for the feedback if it's a good rating. And we say, hey, call patient relations if it's a bad rating. It's after the fact. You're too late. Okay, here's another one. You might not be a good community manager if... You're only concerned with growing your audience or the numbers of followers you have. I, I know a lot of people that they look at like how many followers they have and they're, they're really trying to game that, that algorithm that Facebook keeps changing, right? And they're saying, oh, and we're going to be measuring how many likes and how many comments and all this other stuff. And it's growing. So obviously we're building a community. No, you're not. What you're doing is you're just trying to build an audience. Now, that's not to say you don't want to build your community. You do. Sure. But that's, again, that's you're missing the point. Okay. You want to do another one? Yeah, let's do it. You might not be a good community manager if... You have a content calendar. (laughs) So true. Should you have a content calendar? Yeah, yeah, you should. But again, that doesn't just mean like, okay, cool. We now do community management. We have a content calendar. That's so funny. Yeah, I mean, it's like, well, we publish, you know, we publish on Facebook twice a day and we do mm-hmm. four tweets a day. So yeah. and our audience is growing. So we must be doing good community management. I read an article and I'm even scheduling some stuff on the weekends. <laughs> <laughs> we laugh because this is so common here. Okay. So yeah. we, we made a little fun of community management. Maybe we should actually talk about what really are good qualities of a community manager. I found this over on the blog at digimind.com, and this is uh, top 10 qualities of a good community manager. First one, versatility. Being able to juggle a bunch of different stuff. Social media people tend to be community managers, but they're doing all these other things. But the, the whole point of versatility here is that a good community manager is kind of juggling between different platforms. They're sometimes spending time on Facebook. They're sometimes spending time on Twitter. Mm-hmm. They're looking where their communities are. What's great about a, a, a good versatile community manager is that they also can kind of predict and see where potentially where the community may go. And they're versatile enough to really look at different ways that the community can grow and be there first. This is how you create the Oreo ad. Uh, Secondly, good organization. We're back to the content calendar again. Yeah, it's much more than that though, Reed, right? (laughs) Content planning, but also... You know, having the tools in place so that you can actually track and plan and schedule and know when to stop scheduling. You know, if a tragedy happens in your community, you maybe you want to stop scheduling some posts that are there. Really understand where your community is at and being able to reach out to them in a, in a way that is very structured and organized. By the way, that that leads to a kind of a steady voice, a steady tone, and it, it actually reinforces the positivity of a brand through a good community manager that's organized. Yeah. And they won't post stupid crap 
on the brand's Facebook page by accident. <laughs> We've seen that. We had we had one not too long ago with a client, so it was pretty awesome. Uh, you know, side note, they're looking for a new community manager. If anybody's interested, send me a note. <laughs> okay, the third one is also a good one, which one, which I really like. This this character is a curiosity, wanting to know about some of the new platforms, or really, you know, keeping an eye on like what's happening in the social communities. Curiosity is like one of those things that's hard to teach but really important. It is. And there's a super fine line between shiny object syndrome and curiosity. Every time a new platform comes out, you know, we have this conversation, right? It's like, well, do we need an Instagram account? Do we need a Snapchat account? You know, it's like, well, no, I don't know that we do, but you know, first off, do we want a little bit of brand protection? Should we just, you know, claim our handle? But secondly, you know, for me at least, I have a hard time understanding exactly how I think this fits in to the overall plan without tinkering with it. Folks that can, you know, go for a weekend and come back and go, you know what, I was playing with Periscope this weekend and here's how I think it could fit into what we're already doing. You know, is this, you know, a way we maybe could try this out and stuff. Anyway, so you want somebody constantly kind of pushing those boundaries a little bit in this role. Okay. How about the fourth one? Impeccable spelling. So this is why I'm not a community manager uh, and will never be a community <laughs> manager. This is my one hold up. No, it is important, right? And it, we always have the joke of the your versus your versus your <laughs> you know, kind mm-hmm. of a deal. Yep. This kind of goes back to the organization trait a little bit is someone that is diligent enough to slow down enough to reread, to check because people get in a hurry. People make mistakes. And, and I'm not saying that people can't ever make a mistake. You want people that, that are, you know, policing that and, and understand that that really is important. And that kind of leads into the next one. And this one's also a little bit hard to teach, but uh, important. Common sense, but also empathy. Yeah, and especially in healthcare. And we always say that the easy example is is when when you're looking at negative comments and negative reviews and some of those types of things is asking yourself, how is this going to be perceived by others? Because you end up with a lot of these comments or reviews that are just out of left field. And it's like, well, if you think they're out of left field, then probably most everybody is, you know, and, and let's not get too terribly worked up about this. Have some common sense around what you're doing, how, why you're doing it. Um, and, but in the healthcare realm, understand that people that are coming to your organization, you know, are in a different state in a lot of cases than, and I don't mean across state lines, I mean like mentally in a different state, then they probably typically are. Whether it's frustrations from billing, whether it's they've got a sick kid, you know, whatever it is, right? Just understand and try to put yourself in their shoes. And again, like you said, kind of hard to teach. Creativity in the face of competition. So here they're talking about, um, you know, making sure that your community manager has the ability to be original and be creative and sometimes use that on the fly almost and find out different ways that they can actually communicate a message. And I see that a lot, particularly in healthcare, when everything's the same all the time, everybody's world-class care and blah, blah, blah. How do you rise yourself? Right, exactly. See last week's episode. But in this case, it's like, you know, really try to bring some creativity and bring that personality and voice into what you're doing from a community management perspective. Number seven, again, kind of goes off of what they mentioned earlier about common sense and being empathetic and things like that. But anyways, having good judgment. You got to understand when not to throw gasoline on the fire and what's a troll, what's not a troll, what do you need to spend time on? 
Because again, there's not enough hours in the day. Versatility plays off of this as well, like we mentioned earlier, but but having good judgment. Number nine is respect for the editorial line. Knowing that you know you have an editorial calendar that you need to follow and that you want to really use the editorial and style guide of your business as appropriate for the platform that you're on. Don't tweet out one of your press releases if it doesn't make sense package it in a way that's actually right for that audience or, you know, whatever the platform may be, you really have to be concerned about how you're presenting your business appropriately on the, whatever channel that you're using. The last two on the list, I I think are somewhat uh, repetitive a a little bit, uh, but number nine, uh, a taste for tools and figures. And so the idea is that, you know, you want somebody that, you know, is willing to measure and look at the performance of what they're doing. We mentioned around curiosity, the, the ability to be able to kind of wade in, you check out new tools, uh, come up with ways to do new things uh, and kind of push that boundary a little bit. Uh, And then finally, keeping your cool, again, goes back and and kind of references a few of the other points, but the ability to really understand trolls versus people actually needing help questions. And again, you work in healthcare. So even, even in this role, I think there's, there's some level of calling and pride to what you're doing. And understand that you're not going to win, you know, conversations or arguments online. And, you know, how can you best help? And, you know, Reed, as I look back at um, the communities that I currently manage and, you know, quite frankly, our audience here on on Touchpoint is a community too, right? If you think about it, we're, we're managing a community right now as we're talking to them. I'd say that one of the, the, the strongest benefits of doing good community management is that you actually have a community there of people that you know, that you can connect with, that you can relate to. And if you do it authentically and you do it with good intention, ultimately, this is a good thing. Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast, I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, You know, they've got a consumer experience platform that that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've, we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? That's right. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. Well, there you go. I, you know, I would, I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else, they've also got some complimentary solutions on their website, but, but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems, kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to influencehealth.com. Touchpoint. Touch counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready? Fight! This is, according to one person, not their most favorite part of the podcast. That's someone mentioned that in our listener survey. We hope that maybe we can convert them to becoming a touch point, touch counterpoint loyal listener, but this is the part of the show where we face off on a topic. And we've been talking a lot about community read. I thought that maybe we could uh, kind of back and forth on what's the best way to grow a community? Can a community grow organically or do you really have to come in very sophisticated and learn 
the best way to manage a community, like, you know, learn all the practices and the tools and strategies. What's your thoughts on that? It's all about incentives, man. You got to pay them. Got to pay them to get them in there. <laughs> that, that's a tough one. My, my opinion is, is that organically is the best way to go. So if you, if you provide the best support and of value content and support, then it will grow and it, and it will grow and meet the needs of the people that join. Um, you know, and you'll have some attrition, you'll have people join and things like that, but the people that are there, you're helping and want to be helped. And so I would leave it up to the, the organic side of the equation. Hey, I'm, I'm all about building your audience organically, but you know, the thing is with a lot of these online social communities, you're going to have to do some things to actually rapidly grow that audience. It's not that you have to pay them, but you might have to pay to get them to be familiar with your community. So advertising, bringing people in, doing whatever you can to attract them and using all the strategies out there, maybe really researching the right types of hashtags so that you can kind of hijack those conversations. If you can bring people in to accidentally serendipitously find your brand, but then you have to really be very cognizant about that organic growth too. So I think that it's, you, you want to stress a little bit more heavier on the growth because it's a numbers game at the end of the day. Well, but it's a numbers game for what? I think still you've got to, just stay, stay the course. I mean, this is not, uh, it's not a marketing activity. I mean, sure. Some of these folks may become uh, patients, customers, you know, whatever, you know, whatever kind of group you're talking about, but the idea is to facilitate a forum uh, where they can, you know, it's mutually beneficial for, for everybody involved. I don't know though. I mean, I, again, I get it. I'm not, I I don't want to discount the organic nature. Yeah. You have to be good. You have to be able to kind of nurture your community and talk to them. But at the other hand, you have to really be focusing on how to bring more people in because, you know, after a while people kind of lose interest with these communities and I I don't know how many brands are going to, are people going to follow anyway online. If you start to bring more people in, inevitably your community is going to grow larger and your community is going to get better because it's bigger. I guess it really just depends on what the ultimate goal of the community is. So I think it's somewhere in the middle, honestly. I mean, I know we're kind of going about this conversation a little bit differently, but who are we trying to help? You know, those that want to be helped or are we trying to attract people? Uh, I mean, I get that, like, unless they know about it, we can't help them kind of a thing. So, I mean, I get that part of it. Where would you rather live, want to live, in New York City or Tulsa, Oklahoma. Come on, size matters here. Tulsa. Who wants to live in New York City? <laughs> All I can think of is the Pace Picante sauce commercial, but anyway. <laughs> no, it's it's actually you're indeed right. We're coming to the middle again. Chicago. It's really about what your purpose is, right? Oh, I didn't know if you meant geographically in the middle. St. Louis. Dallas. But the point is, is that like, if you really want to build a community that's big and it's robust and has a lot of interactivity, you probably are going to have to invest in some good strategies. If your community's much smaller, like a patient support group, I think you're right. You can keep it just growing organically and small and really focus on the quality of the interactions, not the quantity of interaction. I think that's fair. Again, it goes back to the type of community, what goals you're trying to accomplish, who's involved, longevity, what kind of manpower do you have to manage it, you know, et cetera. But I'll take New York City any day of the week, man. <laughs> I'll stay in Tulsa. <laughs>
right, we're back with the Ask the Expert portion of the podcast. And today I am fortunate to be joined by Dan Hinman. Dan is a longtime friend of Chris and I, and uh, he has worked in the public relations marketing space and in healthcare, more specifically hospitals, for a long time and had his own agency gosh, for several decades now. So um, you'll hear him talk a little bit about what he's up to now with Hive Strategies uh, and also um, with the Mayo Clinic social media network. Dan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure, Reed. Nice to be here today. Yeah, great. Well, um, for those that, that are not familiar with you or Hive Strategies or maybe even the Mayo Clinic social media network, maybe give them, um, I don't know, a little, little color around what it is that you're doing on a daily basis. Yeah, as you mentioned, I've had my own advertising agency here in Oregon now since 1990. And during that period, I focused primarily on healthcare, also some other clients. But about oh, eight years ago, I decided I wanted to start to focus more specifically on social media and healthcare, And that's when I discovered the Mayo Clinic Social Media Network. That was established to help healthcare communicators and marketers learn more about social media and its application to healthcare. And so I joined the organization, got more involved over time. And about four years ago, Lee our director, asked me to become the community manager for the social media network. So I spend three or four hours a day helping to manage that online community for our members. And also I'm responsible for our annual conference. So in the other three or four hours a day, I've become really, really interested in online patient communities. And and for a number of personal reasons, which I don't need to go into right now, but it's become a real passion of mine. I've seen People, as they go through these scary, frightening, difficult experiences with their health, really gain so much comfort from the opportunity to go online and communicate with peers who have experienced their same same thing. So about four years ago, I started really exploring what are the keys to successful online patient groups. And I've learned a lot about the good and the bad associated with that, what works, what doesn't work. And so I devote my time now into uh, providing advice to those who, who need it to set up successful, specifically Facebook support groups, but support groups in general in healthcare um, as part of Hive Strategies. How are you seeing uh, hospitals deploy Facebook groups? The inpatient support groups have some issues in terms of accessibility for patients. Uh, you might be in an urban hospital and it's and your your sessions are at night and and it's winter and it's snowy and it you know parking is tough and people it's hard for them to get in. Maybe they they live a couple of hours from your hospital uh, and it's not easy for them to come in for for a session, or or maybe they're caregivers and they can't leave home easily for these kinds of support systems. And so hospitals are really migrating to these online support groups, particularly with Facebook, because it's so simple to set up. Some of them are using it in in addition to the in-face groups, and many are just saying, wow, this is effective for us because it's 24-7. Is Facebook good? I could probably argue both sides of that. I guess the one side, which is, well, that's where everybody already is. So from an adoption standpoint and maybe a use standpoint, that's the easy way to go. But you know, is there is there a negative side to that as well as far as we're relying on a third-party platform we don't control? There is, and it is the biggest risk, and that is that you don't, 
have any control over the platform. Facebook is going to make whatever changes they want over time to the group pages, and we have no control over it. So for instance, suppose Facebook decided to allow ads into your group, and you had no control over that, and you're, you've set up a healthcare group, and you're seeing ads for products that you don't like in your community. I mean, that would be a killer in my mind. And so there definitely are risks without managing the platform. But the biggest advantage is one you mentioned, and that is that one of the hardest things to, for a successful online community is to get people to begin the habit of coming to the community regularly to check in and interact with others. When you put it in in a Facebook group, they already have that habit. They're already coming to Facebook, and it's so easy for them to just click onto their group and make that contact each day. And in addition, Facebook has really, in the last year, really beefed up the tools available to groups and group managers in order to really make these interactions successful. And those tools have really been a a big help. For example, most of the groups that I work with are closed. And with a closed group, that, of course, means that people can see the group, they can find it on a search, they can see who belongs, but they can't see anything about the conversations, photos, other content within the group. So that's the position that I see most hospital systems taking on on their groups. You can set up a system where people have to answer questions in order to join. So it's a simple thing. Three questions they may fill out before you accept them as members of your closed group. But that gives you an insight into who they are. And it also gives you the ability to screen those out that you may not want. That's one interesting thing. They've also set up a very cool Facebook rules process because one of the things, of course, for a successful group is to try to reduce conflict within the group. You do that by setting up appropriate rules. Facebook takes you through some steps. How about this rule? How about this rule? How about this rule? You can choose up to 10. And when you choose them, they automatically show up in your about section on your group page. Of course, you're going to customize that. And they allow you, of course, to do that, to customize any of those rules. But they guide you through the process so that you can really have some some effective rules there. And the third thing I'll mention quickly, Reed, is they have super improved the insights. You can go into the insights section now. You see who's on, when, their last comments, all kinds of tools and insights, many, many tools and insights that are really powerful for a a community manager to be able to more effectively manage the group. Are you seeing groups clustering around certain service lines? In order to have a successful group, you need to have the buy-in from your internal stakeholders. And you also need to know whether the people you think would benefit by the group really would benefit. And so there's some research to do, but but my recommendation is that you pick a service line that you're already identified as wanting to grow. So in your annual strategic planning, you'd say, these are the service lines that we really want to grow within our organization. And then if you can align your group, if you're starting one with those objectives, then that's your biggest opportunity for success because you'll get the ongoing internal support and you'll be able to be uh, accomplishing a marketing objective at the same time. So the ones that we see that really work, that's the one main thing. But secondly, there needs to be an emotional component 
to the group. So people come to groups, not for information. You can get information anywhere. And, and I guess I'll say that better. Information can be of some value, but the reason why they come is for the emotional support. The, the more difficult the disease or illness or physical challenge they're going through, the more emotional support they need, the more these are successful. So for example, in uh, Boise, one of the hospital systems there, the parents of NICU patients, because these are such emotional times and they're reaching out for insights and support from other parents, they it's very vibrant and active and growing. And then of course, cancer groups are some of the most successful of these or or people with rare diseases when they, they want to connect with others that when there are just so few people who are experiencing them. Uh, bariatric weight loss groups are very successful. There's some notion then that the higher the acuity or, or if it's a chronic illness or something that, that includes a long road to recovery, uh, you know, these, these types of things are the ones. Uh, and obviously, if you have in-person support groups, that's probably a pretty good indication that that may be something worth considering for online support groups. Is that fair? I think that is fair. So, for example, joint replacement. That's not a great support group. <laughs> I mean, you get through that in a matter of a few months and then you're on to, to life. And and so it doesn't involve those things that, that, you know, could really tie people in for a while. Past leadership buy-in, what are some of those other indications or things that people need to have in place to, to really see these gains in traction? First of all, that is that early research. Make sure you have the leadership buy-in. And then I always recommend that people interview 5 to 10 to 15 potential group members. You might think it's a great idea that your patients would absolutely love it, but they may already be involved in an online support group through another organization, not feel a need for it, or they may not be comfortable sharing stuff online, or they may not be online savvy. And so you can find these things out by interviewing about 10 potential members. So I think that's that's kind of the essential research that you need. Make sure stakeholders are in hand. If people just start a group without doing that research, then their success of failure really, really drops. The other thing that's really essential and a big key difference, and, and I cannot overstate this, between success and failure is having a community manager and having the right community manager. That is going to make or break your whole experience, your whole, your whole success as a group. And here's why. If you think you can just start a group and then let it run itself, then it just isn't going to work. You need someone who can manage the group. We say initially in 45 or, or 50 minutes a day, a commitment to be in there, to monitor the conversations, to make sure that um, you can stimulate ideas and keep things going when, when it's necessary. But then the other part is the mindset. Because if someone goes into is managing a group and they're all like, if it's all about to them being the one who's the know-it-all, having all the answers, jumping in and answering everybody's questions, correcting people when they're wrong, then you're going to kill the group too. You've got to have the right mindset, which is more of a party host mindset when you're introducing people to each other, encouraging conversations, sharing the right information to keep things going, not being the one who has all the answers, but connecting with others to answer. That is a big factor between success and failure. 
And, and it's so important that I've created a guide to um, the five essential mindsets for um, a successful community manager. And I'm happy to share that with your audience. Absolutely. We'll, we'll make sure we link to that in the show notes as well. But, you know, what are some of those things that you would recommend for those that maybe they have a group that they would like to try to reinvigorate or, or it's just not really gaining traction or they just don't like the way it's going? Do you, do you have some advice for those folks? I think the one thing you want to start by doing is digging into your, your group insights function that I mentioned earlier. You know, see where the activity is coming from, who's engaged, who isn't. Um, and that can start with your assessment of, wow, where do we need to really focus? So really, the first, first question once you dig into insights is, this, is this group even viable? I mean, is this an idea that was wrong from the start? And no matter what we do, it's not going to fix it. And in that case, you know, the best idea is to uh, discontinue the group. If you think the idea is still sound, then you need to look at your community manager. Who is managing it? How often? How's that working out? Does the personality the right match there? You might need to make a change. The third thing that I would say is, is to get some more education about ways to engage people more than to give answers. And so make sure that whoever's running the group really has some good background and skill set in, in doing that, encouraging engagement within the community. And I think uh, really another way to do it is to ask the community. This could be one of your most powerful tools. Ask the community what is working here and what is not working here. And that can be in the form of polls or or just group discussions. Or you could go ahead and, and pick those 10 or 15 people who are active, 10 or 15 who are not active, do some quick phone calls with them, tell us what you like and don't like about the group. If we wanted to improve this, what would you say? I think that could really be a valuable resource. This is some really good information. And, and I think you know this is a topic we could probably continue to dig into and maybe will in some future episodes. Um, I think, you know, the, the guide that you have, again, we'll link to that is, is a great resource for folks. But if people want to reach out and connect with you online, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Right. They can just simply email me, dan at hivestrategies.com. They can come to the website, hivestrategies.com. I offer a free consultation. They can fill out that form and pop it to me. I'm I'm at HiveDan on Twitter, so you can tweet me, and I'm happy to to respond uh, to any questions that anyone has. This is I really do feel like the more powerful support groups can be, specifically online, the greater they can benefit the people's lives, the more of a help that's going to be, not only to them, but to your health system. It increases loyalty to the system. It, research shows people have better outcomes, the more educated they are. And this is a way to provide that education along with that peer-to-peer support. I think it's a win-win all the way around. So I'm really excited to be able to help people have those successful experiences. Really appreciate you coming on. and look forward to, of course, seeing you in person here in a few months uh, down in Jacksonville. But uh, thanks, Dan. My pleasure, Reed. Thanks for inviting me. All right, wrapping up the end of episode. What are we, 83? Good stuff on communities. Thanks again, Dan Hinman. Again, we'll have links to all uh, the ways that you can connect with him, including uh, where to find uh, that white paper he he mentioned uh, in, in the interviews. If you haven't, 
uh, we mentioned the, the listener survey earlier. I feel like we're asking you to do a lot of stuff, but while you're at the website, um, you'll notice uh, a way to sign up for the Touchpoint Insider. You can look up at the header at the top. That's a, a really cool weekly email with curated content from all the Touchpoint Media show hosts from all the different shows uh, and links to you know any new episodes from week to week. It's lightweight, easy to read. You can skim it, click on links that are interesting to you. I uh, would encourage you to uh, to check that one out. Absolutely, Reed. That's a good one. Now, you know, um, before we jump into the recommendations, we want to remind people that we're going to be at three conferences coming up over the next couple of months. The first is going to be at the Atlas Conference. Uh, the Atlas Conference is a, co- a conference around patient access sponsored by Kairos. That's going to be in Boston. Uh, you should go to atlasconference.com to check out all the details on that. And when you do, if you work for a hospital or a health system and you want to attend, be sure to, as you're doing the registration, hit the promotion code up there and type in touchpoint50, touchpoint50, so you get 50% off your registration for that conference. We'd love to see you there. We're going to be recording some podcasts. We're going to be talking to some of the panelists that are there. And I, myself, am going to be a panelist at the show. I am not. I'm just media. I'm just going to be playing podcast guy. So... (laughs) Uh, anyway, no, it'll be great. That's going to be a lot of fun. Second on the agenda, actually the next two are both in the month of November. The first one is the Healthcare Internet Conference out in the state of Arizona. We love the Healthcare Internet Conference. You can find out more information at hcic.net. If you're listening in, you're probably familiar with this one. This is that annual conference where we talk all things internet and healthcare. A lot of great different sessions out there. I'm going to be doing a pre conference workshop with uh, some of my friends at Binary Fountain. We're going to be talking about things. We'll post all that information on our website, but definitely get out to that conference. And when you're there, find Reed and I, because we're going to be recording a few shows while we're there as well. HCIC.net, and that's November 5 through 7. So the very next week, we will actually fly back across the country to Jacksonville, Florida, for the Mayo Clinic Social Media Network's annual conference. That'll be another fun one. Um, I believe it's the 14th and 15th of November. Uh, the day prior is kind of a pre-conference. On the 13th is a uh, residency. And uh, to learn a little bit more about all of those events, uh, socialmedia.mayoclinic.org is where you can find all that information. And FYI, Reed and I are going to be doing a workshop at that conference as well. Yes, on how to do podcasts. We can at least tell you what not to do. So that's maybe even more important. All right. What do you have for recommendation today? Reed, I'm going to recommend something that you actually recommended to me over a year ago. If you recall, I uh, I asked you... What's a good mail solution, an email solution to use on your Mac? You know, because I was using the native iMail and and you suggested to me to use Spark, an email management system. And I have since over the last year, almost two years now that using it, have really come to really appreciate that. Spark is just a really killer tool. I aggregate a number of my emails. I have, you know, I'm like any other digital guy. I have about four or five different email addresses. I aggregate them into one email box. It allows me to sort, do all the things that a good email management system does. It has an app for um, my phone, which is very useful. Overall, it's just a really, really good tool. I really come to appreciate it. You could tell that 
the designers behind this tool know the best way to manage emails. And they really spend a lot of time trying to make that easier. One of the most recent things they do now is they aggregate all my emails into different types of categories automatically. And that sort of that knowledge, that intelligence, the artificial intelligence behind that is just awesome. And it makes it super easy when you get a new device to just drop your email on that new device without knowing all your IMAP settings and you know all that kind of stuff. Um, okay, I'm recommending a Netflix show that I've been looking forward to for a while. So uh, season one, uh, watched it, and season two actually comes out this Friday. So I haven't seen season two, but this gives you, well, actually it would have come out last Friday <laughs> as you're listening to this, came out on the 31st, but is Ozark with uh, Jason Bateman. Do you see season one? Oh, I love that show. And we, it, my wife and I were so excited that season two is coming. I've read it's a little dark. And this is like the first like really true dark one since uh, like Breaking Bad or something like that. I think it's what the review said that I, that I saw. But anyway, looking forward to it. I love Jason Bateman. Uh, usually he, he cracks me up. So I enjoy the stuff he's in. But um, yeah, Ozark. Definitely. Awesome recommendation, Reed. Awesome. Well, we're at the end of episode 83 again. Thank you for hanging in there. Thanks for uh, being a fan and a loyal listener. Uh, if you would, go out, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you get your podcast. Touchpoint.health is the website. He's Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.